This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Today we're going to be talking about one of Steve's favorite topics ever. He has been bringing it up in a background kind of way, continually being like, well, if you don't have anything today, I'll do this one because it's just his hobby horse that way. So Steve, what are we talking about today? We're talking about motivational interviewing. So this is something that I am hugely interested in, literally do it every day for most of the day for my work. Let's define it here. And so what is it? The lay definition is that it's a collaborative conversation to strengthen a person's own motivation and commitment to change. So as an addiction counselor, someone who talks to people about making changes in their lives all the time, this approach is very useful to kind of strengthen someone's motivation and commitment to do the thing that they're really hiring you to do. And it's not just useful in the addiction field where it was developed, but it's an approach to conversations that is widely applicable in everyday life. Like for example, if you're talking to someone who's expressing some ambivalence about whether they want to do something, and ambivalence means they're halfway in, halfway out, they're kind of talking about making a change like quitting a job, going to the gym, whatever it is they're thinking about doing, they're not fully all in yet. And so this is a conversation style that can be very helpful in supporting really anyone thinking about change. What are your thoughts? How's that definition? I think motivational interviewing is probably the closest thing we have to wizardry or magic. (laughs) No, but seriously, if you think about, I mean, obviously I spend a lot of time in this space, but if we think about like what wizards are supposed to be, it's supposed to be using knowledge that is obscure, but a particular approach to things that can have great effects using typically words. So really effective therapy can be that because what's more powerful than getting other people to change their behavior. Though it's not going to be like that statement might imply that we're manipulating people if you use this tactic or this approach to therapy. But I wouldn't say it's that. Like, what would you say to that reaction of it being manipulative? Yeah, it's very much not. I would define the difference between manipulation and persuasion as manipulation would be you're doing it disingenuously. So there's some kind of hidden ulterior motive that is likely very self-serving and you're kind of tricking them in some way that your motive are not put out there and that you're trying to bend them to do something you want versus persuasion and kind of a compassionate version of persuasion, which is what this is, is a style of communication that's meant to serve them for their own purposes, whatever those are. And so it's very person-centered in that sense, where you're not trying to get them to do what you want them to do, but you're trying to get them to do what they want to do. I often refer to this approach as sales, like selling someone on their own best interests. Yeah, that is what a good salesperson would try to get them to do. So then the question is, if somebody already wants to do that thing, what's stopping them? Why are you even a necessary component to this? Like, they want to do it. Like, they'll just do it then, won't they? (laughs) Well, yeah, that's kind of a funny question. I know you know the answer. Because people want to do a lot of things that they don't do. 
do. We often hear people around January, you know, in our willpower episode, we talked about this. They, they want to do so many things. They want to stop eating candy. They want to start going to the gym. They want to change careers. They want to go back to school. They want to be a better parent. They want to take that vacation. I don't know, whatever it is they want to do. People want to do a lot of things, but how much... want to write that novel. Yeah, I want to write that novel. How many things do people tell you they want to do that they never do? It's like an epidemic of sorts. And so people could want to stop using substances. But again, ambivalence, people are highly ambivalent, meaning they kind of want to and they kind of don't want to, or they can really want to and really not want to at the same time. This all seems to tie back into fear of hope as well, because in that, like one person I spoke to recently, I told you about her, how she wanted to quit her job and had written up a resignation letter and could quit her job financially. Her partner would take care of her and she had her own house and actually people knocking on the door to get her to do work for them, like in a freelance capacity. And she just didn't, even though she hates her job. So like, it's interesting how you can even just like, everything is right there. There's no reason not to, but for some reason you just continue. What do you find in your work? Do you find that is a common reason for that sort of situation? Well, I think you're right on with that fear of hope episode we did. I think there's going to be a lot of overlap here with Dr. Ellen Horn, who used a very highly person-centered approach, which this is all based on. And it's highly compassionate. And we'll get into all these definitions in, in a second. But what stops people? Well, fearing raising their own expectations of themselves is a big part of that. That's the fear of hope. Like if I were to sign up for the gym and I don't go, then I'm going to be letting myself down. And therefore it's easier to just not sign up at all because you didn't disappoint yourself in kind of stopping. And so there's part of that, you know, fears of, of what other people will think of them, fears of whether they're competent and they can handle this change, you know, that's unfamiliar. People tend to do what's familiar. The more you do something, the more you want to do something, even if it's self-destructive often. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. Yeah, fear of change as well, like how you'll have to adapt. Maybe you won't like it. What if it's bad? But I think a lot of it just boils down to the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. So that's a big part. Yeah, for sure. So we're hinting at what this is for and what it's intended to do and that it's quite wizardry. It's a really powerful skill to have. And people are probably asking, well, how do you do it? What is it? Yeah, what do you you're talking around it. We want to, we demand to know. Tell us how. We demand to know what this magic wizardry is. How do you possibly help someone change? I've been trying to help so-and-so for years and they're just resisting. Pointing out all the benefits, telling them this is what you got to do and they just don't do it. And that's on them. And they, if they don't want to change, people often get blamed when they're often in very unhelpful situations. <laughs> Yes, I'm laughing because we're still teasing them with the actual, thing. we're <laughs> still talking it up, talking past the sale. Okay, what are some of the techniques? What are the, some of the frameworks? We've talked about them before, I think a little bit. So can you dive directly into those now, please? Yeah, so there's three main aspects here. There's the spirit of motivational interviewing, the tools of motivational interviewing, and the process of motivational interviewing. And so let's start with the spirit of motivational interviewing. This is your way of being with someone. This is like the way you show up as a person being present with them non-judgmentally and just with empathy. If you don't have this kind of spirit of empathic partnership that you were there for them and present, then none of the other stuff's going to go over well. What's the opposite of the spirit of showing up in this way? Can I guess? Yeah, guess. What's the opposite of what I just described? Going in, being domineering, telling them that you know best effectively through your actions or your words, not really caring what 
they want at all. And yeah, I don't know, basically along those lines, just being domineering and not listening or empathetic. Yeah, it's what people commonly do when faced with a problem where someone wants to change, you go in there like, well, this is what you got to do. Take it or leave it. I tried to help. You know, it's a very kind of, this is your problem diagnosing. Yeah. And putting them on the defense to defend the status quo, because if what they were doing was so stupid and they didn't see it before you came along, then they must also be stupid. So if you're attacking that saying, you got to change, then they end up feeling defensive because you're basically saying, hey, you idiot, (laughs) you're doing something stupid and I can see it because I'm smarter than you. Yeah. And so when you're faced with that kind of criticism, what's our natural tendency? Is it to say, oh, you're right. I guess I'm being stupid. Well, tell me more, (laughs) sir. (laughs) Or is it the exact opposite? You know, when faced with that, people close up, they withdraw, or they defend their current position for staying the same. So highly unhelpful. So this is not just about being nice. This is about being effective. We're not saying be empathetic because it's nice and you can be a nice person and that's good. But also that. Oh, sure. That, that too. Bonus. But it's also because the alternative doesn't work. The alternative just creates more resistance. And then you say, the person's resisting change. I tried. But a lot of that resistance is created in the therapeutic relationship. It's created by the person trying to help. And the person who's trying to be helped is blamed for all of this resistance when really it's the relationship itself that's unhelpful. And so there's a nice acronym to go by here. It's called pace in the spirit of partnership, acceptance, compassion, and empathy. And so these are the ingredients of the spirit of motivational interviewing. You bring these things to the table. You're partnering with them. You're kind of like the travel agent of change. Like you don't go to a travel agent and they're like, this is where you're going to go. This is how you're going to get there. Done. Take it or leave it. And you're like, well, no, sir. I actually kind of wanted to go there. And you know, I was thinking of taking the train and the scenic route. No. (laughs) you're resisting. And so it's kind of like you're a travel agent in in a sense. You sit down with the person, you're like, okay, where do you want to go? How can I help you get there? Let's explore some options. What do you think of this? Oh, what do you think of that? And and that spirit of partnership is, is key because if you're ahead of them trying to coerce them or behind them trying to push them, this push pull dynamic just creates more resistance as we said before. The second part of the acronym acceptance, this goes back to Carl Rogers, this concept of unconditional positive regard. And Yeah, I was going to say it does really tie into him. And what he means by that is regardless of what the person says, you will look at them in a positive light. You'll take their side. Even if you might dislike them in normal circumstances in therapy, that is not useful in that space. putting aside your tendency to judge. Yeah, even if you think the behavior that they're doing is destructive, you can even admit, you could both say like, yeah, it is. It's highly destructive. But you're kind of looking at the behavior separate from the person and you're looking at the person that you're talking to as someone who has it within them to potentially change that has potentially good intentions and wants to be better and kind of separating the person from behavior in a sense because those judgments will just get in the way and you won't be able to be helpful if you kind of start going in that oh well i think it's your fault here (laughs) you know blaming and and the shaming aspects because people have enough of that they show up with a ton of shame often and guilt To be fair, I don't know how representative that is because it's clearly a sampling bias of people who are willing and able to reach out to you. I think a lot of people are encompassed in that, but it's still just limited by who's going to reach out. Because, I mean, I'm listening to you say this and I'm thinking like, what if like the person is legitimately an asshole and they keep being a jerk to everybody? Like what then? Like they may not have shame for that. They may not even have self-awareness that they're being pushy and rude and they think the other people who are resisting their aggression are 
being aggressors. Okay, yeah, you're talking about kind of narcissists, sociopaths, psychopaths, antisocial personality. Sure, or just the person who's abrasive, yeah. <laughs> yeah, tendency, kind of lesser versions of that too. And I guess, yeah, that people do, I talk to a lot more people who are the opposite of that because those people tend not to necessarily reach out as often. But I do talk to them as well. But I would say, yeah, the vast majority of people showing up for therapy are doing so with a lot of shame and guilt and isolation. And so adding more to that is not helpful. And even if they do show up and they're not in shame and they think everyone else is the problem, if you start trying to blame them, that's not going to be helpful either. And so you have to have that unconditional positive regard for whoever or whatever shows up. Mm. I just realized that we stopped on spirit of the group. Did you have more to fill out the spirit? Yeah, yeah we said uh, kind of partnership, acceptance, compassion is a big part of that. That means kind of doing it for the other person's benefit, not your own manipulative purposes without a preconceived notion of what the other person needs or should have. And so there's the compassion piece. And the last part is evoking, which is evoking their own reasons for change rather than telling them your reasons why they should change. And so that's kind of the way of showing up with them in this highly person-centered way. And I would say Carl Rogers would be really the founder of this approach. And Mr. Rogers being the manifestation of that approach. Yeah, Carl Rogers is a psychologist. Mr. Rogers actually is like a perfect example of this. Like if you watch Mr. Rogers, he is the embodiment of this stuff we're talking about. Oh, I never, never made the connection there. I love that. You got that just like big smile on your face, just appreciating this connection. You're like, oh, Mr. Rogers. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a quote by Carl Rogers, not Mr. Rogers. And I want to say it here. He says, in my early professional years, I was asking the question, how can I treat or cure or change this person? Now I would phrase the question in this way. How can I provide a relationship which this person may use for his own personal growth? So metaphor for some reason that comes up is like a gardener taking a seed and being like, how can I like talk to this seed into sprouting? But instead he's saying, how can I be the soil in which the seed can sprout? Oh, love it. Carl Rogers literally says that in his writings. He was a passionate gardener and he compared psychotherapy to tending a garden. You plant a seed and you create the conditions around that seed for it to flourish on its own. You don't make the seed into what you want it to be, you just create the conditions for it to become what it is and what uh, it can be. So we are being manipulative again. We're incepting them. We're going into their subconscious and planting seeds. But no, I see what you're saying. We're saying like the person is a seed. They're the type of seed. So <laughs> the person shows up, they're the seed, and then you create the conditions for its flourishing. And how do you do that? Well, Oh, we're going to methods now? Hmm, maybe describing a little bit more about Carl Rogers. He gives another metaphor. Like he has an unshakable trust in the person to be able to... <laughs> well, you're laughing at me. Yeah. I'm like, what about this? And you're like, actually, we're going to talk about something completely different. I'm assuming it's connected. I'm not, so. I'm not, I'm not past Carl Rogers here. because he's, he's really the founder of this type of approach. And this approach is mostly a way of being, but there's also technical stuff, which we'll talk about. But if you don't have this down, you don't have any of it. Oh, so that's why you're focusing on this. Because to me, it sounds like you're kind of going like, well, here's the theoretical foundations. And they're like, tell us how. But I guess what you're saying is this is the how, this mentality and the other things are just useless without having this is what you're saying. Yes. 
Gotcha. It's having a level of trust in other people that we often don't have. When someone's not able to do something, we think, oh, they're just incompetent and they need to be instructed and told and coerced. They're misinformed. They're misinformed and if I just give them the correct information, then they will be fixed or change or want to change. But this is having an unshakable trust in their capacity to change, to be able to have it in them to figure it out, to grow if you can just provide the right conditions. It's not seeing the person as fundamentally defective and broken, but it's in the same way that you wouldn't look at a seed as, you know, this seed is ungrowable, toss it away. It's seeing every seed as having potential. And when given the right conditions, it will become what it can be. He gives a metaphor of, you know, the bag of potatoes that you have, like in, if you have like a bag of potatoes in the basement and it's barely getting any light, but there's like a, a little window where there's like a, enough light, those shoots of potatoes will still shoot out those like white spindly sprouts not the healthy green ones you would get in optimal conditions but even in the worst of conditions life still finds a way it still strives jurassic park <laughs> life uh finds a way you just basically said the quote i don't know that one it's a meme with jeff goldblum so you're truly becoming more like jeff goldblum as the years pass oh, i like jeff goldblum i'm i'm honored explain the jurassic park thing i don't get it Oh, he just says at one point, I don't remember why, but that is a famous quote from that movie. Life uh, finds a way, which is, <laughs> I don't know if he's talking about like a seed growing in like a crack in the sidewalk or something to do with the dinosaurs or whatever, but he mentions it somewhere in the film. It's been a long time since I've seen yeah. it. Yeah. And so I guess this is beyond just a therapeutic philosophy. It's a broader philosophy of, of life and organic life in general to kind of manifest and to find ways to flourish and grow, even in the worst conditions. This is a uh, nature versus nurture too, eh? Because I'm just thinking about like people, I remember when we first heard about this debate, it's not really a, a debate very much. It's not either or, it's which one has more of a an influence, I think. But yeah, it's very much nature versus nurture because the way I see nature versus nurture is we have an inherent makeup going into the world and then the world basically either enables or disables certain elements of that and can severely limit what you can reach if it's an unfavorable environment. So this seems like even from an unfavorable environment, you're helping people find a more optimal way to approach their own capacities. Exactly, exactly. And it's very similar to self-actualization, you know, Maslow's concept. This often gets misunderstood that people are actualizing all of their potentials. Like, no, that's not exactly it. That's impossible anyway. It's not only impossible, but you're not going to actualize your potential for nausea all the time. Like, you know, like, <laughs> we have a lot of potential. <laughs> oh, I was taking a different angle. Like, you become like a sumo wrestler and a pop star. Like, and you can't... everything that you could possibly ever have been. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you could do those things separately if you dedicate your life to either one, but you're not going to manifest every one unless we like split into different dimensions. Anyway, continue yeah, on. And so like, this concept of self-actualization is narrower. And so when given the right conditions, like like a rose, it will become what it can be. And this therapeutic relationship. Your family. What's that? Rose, yeah. Your family. <laughs> My <yeah>. family. <laughs> can be, like when given the right conditions. <laughs> Which I refuse yeah. to give. Yeah, I, I withhold. <laughs> My daughter will not have any of that. None of the conditions will be correct. <laughs> Yeah, so this is the spirit of motivational interview. Showing up as a person with other people in this way, and then, well, what do you say? You may ask. If somebody comes to you and says, I want to change, do you just sit there and be like, I am actualizing their potential by being? You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm just accepting everything they're saying with a positive regard, but I'm not speaking. <laughs> yeah, you're just sitting there like meditating on this philosophy of life. So what do you actually say? 
The tools that are often used are four things. Open-ended questions is the most common way to start. And then the second biggest tool would be reflections. So you're reflecting back what you're hearing and just paraphrasing or summarizing what you're hearing to check if what you're hearing is accurate and to demonstrate that you understand accurately what they're thinking and feeling. And there's a couple other tools that are subversions of a reflection, which would be kind of affirmations. So it's state recognizing someone's strength. Like, wow, that took a lot of courage for you to do that. Or pointing out strengths that they have. Like, oh, it looks like you have a highly creative nature. So you're affirming things. And then summaries are just longer reflections. And so I guess if you want to make it as simple as possible, open and question and then reflecting back what you're hearing what's an open-ended question oh you're asking me <laughs> that did not sound like you're leading in for like a rhetorical question like what's an open-ended question well an open-ended question is a question that doesn't have a definitive answer and isn't a yes or no so what time is it is not an open-ended question that's uh, a bad example because i don't have a counterpoint for an open question for that but like what are your favorite things to do on weekends yeah yeah what did you do last weekend so open-ended questions often start with what not always but most often like so what do you want to get from our conversation today is kind of my most common one that i will ask what are your goals here? I always call that signposting. I guess it's not the same thing, but that works too. Like the establishing question, what are you hoping to get out of this call today or whatever? I've used that a fair bit too, incidentally, and I've thought of it as like, we're just marking out the territory we're going to be covering today and what we're working towards. It's a service for that function as well. Yeah. And so open-ended questions that can't be answered by yes or no. Like, do you want to change? Yes. Oh, okay. Great. Anything I think that would lead you basically like to a dead end. That's why I guess it would be an open-ended question. Because if you walk up to somebody and say, you're trying to start a conversation, you walk up and say, hey, what time is it? They're going to tell you the time and that'll be that. Okay. Anything that requires it. And this is also for like talking to strangers. I remember reading a book on that. It's on small talk. Anything that would be close-ended would require you to ask a follow-up question or start talking about something else yourself immediately after they say like one or two words. So that would be something to avoid. And I'll catch myself sometimes doing a closed-ended question if somebody's less talkative and I ask it and they're like, yeah, then it'll be like alarm bells in my head. Uh-oh, I asked a closed-ended question. Switch it up. Now that you say that, it makes me think of like speaking to my younger cousins, like the ones that are like under 10 yeah, or around talking 10. to kids. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you say like, Hey, what's your favorite color? <laughs> they're like, blow. And you're like, great. I now I have to ask another question. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, did you have fun at school today? Yeah. What'd you do at school today? That's an open-ended question. They just don't want to answer it. It is open. What is your favorite subject is the thing that we often ask kids, but it can often be answered with one word, even though it still is open. Science. Tell me more. What do you, what do you like about science? So yeah, it's just how you would follow it up usually, I guess. So the, the what questions are generally more open than do, like do you versus what do you? Yeah. Do you like science? Yes. What do you like about science? You see how it invites further elaboration. Yeah. So that's the first piece. Starting with an opening question, what's going on today? What happened? What brings you here? What do you want? <laughs> you know, And then they start talking, they share content. And then switching to reflective statements is how you keep them talking. Reflective statements would be just summarizing back. Wait, so you are naturally avoiding why questions, I'm going to point out. We've talked about this before, but do you want to elaborate a little bit on why not to ask why? Yeah, I, I'm particularly sensitive around why questions because they often come off as judgmental like if i were to say why do you like science versus what do you like about science i can have the same tone of voice 
And there's just a subtle difference there. Like, why do you like science implies that there's something wrong with liking science. Justify your affection for science. Justify this terrible choice. I've tried to work around that, but sometimes there's nothing you can think of but a why question. And like, I guess the only things I have are what caused you to do blah or what made you decide to do blah. That's how I would ask them now. But like, also, I would say another formulation, which I would also avoid is what did you do X for? (laughs) Because that also is kind of, it's effectively a why question, but just more wordy and still comes off the same way. What'd you go to the store for? No, I'm putting, I'm putting my spin on that. Maybe it's fine. I don't know. Why did you go to the store or what brought you to the store? What did you get at the store? Yeah. Why did you get bananas at the store versus what made you decide to get bananas? I'm curious. <laughs> But it might just come off as like maybe a more passive aggressive, depending on how you're, you're doing depending it. on how you do it. Yeah, it's a subtle difference that can sometimes make a big difference, and so I tend to opt towards the what over the why. And yeah, that's that's really questions in a nutshell. I guess we've really gone over the question part of it pretty thoroughly. But questions are only like a quarter of the things you say in motivational interviewing. Your goal is to have. I guess, for reflective statements, I'm not counting or anything, but if you were to transcribe it in an ideal version of motivational interviewing would have like four different reflective statements per question because you don't want to come off as an interviewer where you're like, what brought you here today? Yeah, because then you become off as abrasive and maybe a bit prying. Yeah, like what did you do before? What are you doing now? I used to call these reporter interactions because sometimes you can fall into that in the club when you're talking to somebody, you end up just interviewing them. Yeah. And so what do you do instead of a question? Because people, they're like, well, what if they answer my question? I have to ask another question. Well, the best way to keep someone talking is not to keep asking questions, but to reflect back what you're hearing. And then if need be, to probe for more through questions. But let's give an example of a reflective statement to be more practical. There's a really simple, simple way to do reflections, which is really not I just jokingly did one to see if you would notice, by the way. But you can go for it. Well, what's your joke? What did you do? Oh, no, I just, I reflected (laughs) what you were just saying when you were doing that. The second one was a little bit more of a flexible reflection, I guess, where I said that it's like the interview mode thing. The one before that, I don't remember. They can listen back, but you can go into your example of it. I was summarizing the intent of what you were seemingly trying to say from what I interpreted. Right. So it's just simply restating what they're saying. The most simple versions are repeating back what they said, which is not at all what a reflection is. That's like a stereotype of therapy. So you're saying that's a stereotype of therapy. Oh, (laughs) come on. Come on now. Like, let's say the client says, your chair is on fire. And the therapist says, I hear you saying my chair is on fire. Like when the chair is actually on fire. (laughs) Like, it's just a very simple, it's not really empathy at all. It's just mechanical. Parrots can do it. Parrots can do it. Yeah. Parroting back. Chris Voss, he's a hostage negotiator. He was with the FBI. He wrote a really good book. He kind of reinforces a very simple version of reflection, which I guess is a start, but I wouldn't say it's where you'd want to keep doing. He says it's repeating back the last two words that the person says. And he's often used this to great (laughs) effect. Oh, I have that to great effect as well with everyone except for with you. Whenever I use it with you, you just say, yeah. And I'm like, I'm trying to get you to like elaborate on the thing I repeated back. Don't just say, yeah, that's not the, I know you said that, especially when it's text. I know what you said. It's in text. I'm not clarifying what I heard. (laughs) You should know better to use better reflections with me. Oh yeah, sure. Whatever. Yeah, it's, it's my fault. I'll take it. Continue on. And so you'll take it. Yeah. You just did a simple reflection. A simple reflection. Okay, so what's a complex reflection then? Are there any other types or is it just simple and complex? Just simple and complex. These are the two general categories. But yes, the most simple way is exactly that. And if you're really new to this, try it. 
like it doesn't hurt anything necessarily if you're not like doing it as part of your job. You just you know if you're talking to someone casually, assuming your job is a therapist, I mean. But if you're just talking to someone casually and you want to kind of practice the most simple version of this, just listen to the last few words where they end off and try saying it in a way that sounds relatively natural. Yeah, I agree. That works all the time. This just sounds like active listening, doesn't it? It is active listening at its core. Okay, because like people were all about active listening, and I think they just thought it was reflecting back the parroting one. But I guess you can like take a stab at like the way I guess I do it, and I'm just a layperson, but I found it has great effect. Is just taking a stab at the emotion or the purpose of them saying that thing sometimes. Like yeah, and it's very frustrating to have to deal with that at your work all the time. Your boss should support you when your coworker is being a dick. Something like that. Like you just kind of summarize it back, and like if you're at a loss for words, you can just say that. Sometimes like. You're obviously not in the mood to be doing active listening but if you're looking for something to say or you're just trying to like connect with somebody that you don't know very well get them talking and then just be doing this again i guess four to one ratio kind of works i mean but i find actually these approaches help a lot in just general interactions and not necessarily for having to do therapy or whatever it's just that using these approaches ends up i think if it combined with some of the act things i think i'm kind of mixing and matching these but you're building rapport with them by repeating their intent back to them or their own words to make sure you understand and then they'll clarify and then you'll continue on and then you can figure out what their motivations are and it also goes to like Dale Carnegie which I'm rereading that all-time classic how to make friends and influence people but it's basically conforming to his stuff too because you're putting their needs and wants first and you're catering to them because basically being a tactful and gregarious person is to put other people's comfort ahead of your own and putting other people's desires and needs ahead of your own. Yeah, and I, there's one last tack on that comes to mind when saying this little monologue is one of the things I've been playing with lately is that especially with people who speak like me where like the conversation meanders around a lot, a lot of the time you will not close off topics, right? Right, it just goes from one topic to another. Yeah. And so the whole thought may not have been closed off. And one of the things I remember picking up from one of those conversation books was don't go back to them. Just let the thread drop switch to the new one and just keep rolling with it. You're basically doing improv with these people, these people being the people in your life with the people you're interacting with. And doing that is much more fun and gregarious as opposed to being, no, hold on, I want to finish that point. That's more of like in a debate form, I guess, which then it would be acceptable. And then I started thinking, if the conversation hits a lull after that and you still have it in your mind, that thread that didn't get to be closed off, you can jump back then. But don't derail the conversation to go back. Yeah, like, oh, okay. Well, what we were talking about before was this. <laughs> well, before you so rudely cut me off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's kind of going with the flow, having trust in yourself and the other person to figure it out. Rolling with resistance. Rolling with it. Yes, that's exactly. Rolling with the resistance is a major concept in an MI, motivational interviewing, where if somebody pushes back and says, well, you know what? Maybe I don't want to change maybe i just want to keep doing what i'm doing and then so rolling <laughs> rolling rather than saying no you don't you just no go back go back we were just there but no no you just said you want it no <laughs> you just stole my win from me uh, <laughs> all this time i thought we had something we're almost so close to a breakthrough and then you had to uh, change your mind god damn uh, it yeah so somebody's like well maybe i'm not ready for this and so i say okay so you're not ready for this, maybe. And so what's going on? And so rolling with it is leaning in, leaning in and going with that energy rather than resisting the energy. This is more like judo than karate, I guess. If, if you're familiar, judo is often associated with using the other person's momentum against them. I guess this is not using it against them in MI, but you're rolling with the other person's momentum to achieve a desired 
Yeah, you're rerouting the energy they're putting out into a different direction. Into a different direction, yeah. So you roll with this energy of resistance, you go into it, and then oftentimes you can kind of reroute the energy toward a more productive direction. But if you resist it like a karate chop, it's like it's just going to be met with more resistance, as we said before. Well, that and it'll actually just hurt because like if somebody tries to punch you and you are able to move out of the way and roll in the same direction as the punch, then you don't take any damage. You just avoid it. But if you try to stop the punch with any part of your body, like stop it forward motion, not just deflecting it, then you're just taking the hit. You're getting punched So because that's what it is to be punched, to try to stop a fist with your face. So it hurts you. It hurts the other person maybe too. And it's a really good quote by Peter M. saying he says, people don't resist change. They resist being changed. Hmm. Reminds me of this. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Because like, don't try to control people. There's some people that are obviously more defiant and they've kind of, a good chunk of them have kind of lost their minds during the pandemic. They just went over the edge. Like the ones that are still protesting in Ottawa right now. Mm. I don't even know what they're protesting at this point. Like we don't have any requirements here anymore. We got no vaccine passports. We got no mask requirements. Got nothing. Except for I think on specific things like the trains between cities and stuff, public transit systems. But outside of that, you don't have to wear a mask anywhere. And yet we have still got people protesting in Ottawa. Bizarre. Yeah, the, the politics of that, it didn't go very well because it seemed like the prime minister kind of karate chopped. put him up against the wall. He karate chopped the situation. He, yeah. <laughs> Let's just say he didn't have much of a listening politically as difficult to do because how do you entertain? Well, the thing we've mentioned before, like even if Beyonce says, this person's an idiot, they're still famous. You're still giving them legitimacy by even having a conversation with them. Yeah, it's hard to do, I guess, politically, but the core, these people didn't feel heard. And just to kind of hear and listen rather than kind of demonize them as these are unacceptable, deplorable things that these people are fringe and kind of furthering well, their sense first, of... Uh, I don't agree with a lot of these things, especially since we're on record in public saying this. I don't agree at all. I think that there are far other cases that are not being heard and are completely not getting conversations and they aren't throwing tantrums and going to the state. If the government were to give a platform for these people, despite not being heard, boo effing who, because the other groups, that's basically rewarding the shouting Karen in Starbucks because they're causing a fit, they're being a dick and making making everybody else's day worse and we're rewarding them by giving them stuff. I don't think we can do that. I think there are far other groups that are not being heard. You're right. That's part of their anger, but they were fairly fringe and they were definitely frothed up to a lather by right-wing propaganda. So I just had to push back there. Yes, I'm referring to oh, kind of a one-on-one basis, not necessarily on the political level, like how you oh, how you would handle that. Yeah, because like how you would handle on a political level, there's all kinds of complexities like what you're saying. But on an individual level, like if I get a phone call and somebody's like legitimately outraged and I provide a listening ear, by the end of that call, they're like, you know what? I feel a lot lighter right now. I think I'm going to have a good day. I think I'll be all right. Yeah, I agree with you. Like if I'm dealing with these people individually, as you know, I do, I'm not telling them they're wrong. I'm usually expressing more empathy towards them. So you're right. When we're speaking about, I guess you did hedge that by saying not on the political level. It just seemed like you're apologizing for like you're taking their side is what it felt like. Oh, no, just clarifying. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. Thank you for putting me on record as not being a sympathizer necessarily. But because I deal with people all the time on a one to one basis, I don't work in politics. And so this form of listening is kind of often just what people need the most like most of my conversations are just really good listening and if you can show that you see where they're coming from not just the words and ideas that they're saying but the 
underlying things that are not being said, the way they're saying it, the emotion underlying it. Between the lines. Yeah, reading between the lines, really hearing every aspect of what's being communicated beyond just words alone. And you can really point that out in a complex way. And I'm just repeating back the last few words. Like what you were saying before, pointing toward the emotion underlying it. Like, wow, this is looking like it's extremely frustrating for you. I couldn't imagine like just these things that you've described here. The anger, I'm really getting a sense that there's a lot of anger here and you really haven't been heard for a long time. And so really pointing toward the things that people are not saying, they're not saying, I don't feel heard, I'm angry. They're saying maybe other things, <laughs> <laughs> like they're in an anger, they tone of voice saying, this government and that. And then you can say, reflecting back to them, I'm hearing like there's just a lot of anger here and you, you, you feel like you've been just isolated for so long and haven't had a voice. And they're like, yeah, that's right. And, and they didn't tell me that, but I'm pointing to other things that are actually going on here. We have still one last piece to cover, don't we? We covered, I think, two. We got methods, we got spirit. What was the last one? And so the last part is the process of motivational interviewing. And it's a general four-part template of how these conversations Ors. tend to go. Ors are the tools that we just went over, open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries. And so those are the tools. Largely just ask an open-ended question and then reflect back exactly what you're hearing, listening very, very carefully. The process of the conversation is start to finish there's four parts, engaging, focusing, evoking, planning. Engaging is kind of really just focusing on listening and reflecting back that you see where the person's coming from. That's to engage them. Once you've engaged them, you want to focus on, okay, what is it here that we need to focus on that I can help you with? So narrowing down. Narrowing it down. Really focus on this issue that you brought up or would it be more appropriate to focus on this other one? And then they tell you and you're like, okay, let's talk about that. And then Tell me more or ask an open-ended question, continue those reflections. And it brings us to the next stage of the process is evoking. Evoking their own reasons for change is what you want to really do at this part once you've kind of focused it. Well, what is it if you were to be able to do this thing? What would you get from that? What would that mean to you? What would your life be like? And they'll tell you, well, I'm, I'm doing this for my kids or a sense of wanting to be in alignment with my own values or whatever it is that their reasons are. You pull those out and perhaps even things that they've already done in the past that reinforce their strengths or things that they've recently done to make those changes so you can point to like, so you've done this, you've done that, and you've done quite a bit already. And you can reflect that back, which brings us into the next stage of what's next. That's planning. And so planning would be a collaborative process of looking at next steps. What could you do today or tomorrow to get you one step closer to what we've been talking about? And then they could think of, well, maybe I can just, you know, go for this walk and maybe you can brainstorm or calm down process, write this letter, look up this job or whatever the next step might be. You're kind of collaborating with them on that, making it more tangible rather than in the beginning, you're really just focusing on letting it go wherever it has to go, kind of guiding a focus, pulling out their reasons for that, and then making it practical by implementing what's required next. So that's the whole process of the conversation. Mm, so that's good. We covered most of it. The one thing I was going to get us to dive into, but decided against, and I'll just redirect you to YouTube for this. The founder, Dr. William Miller, he has a couple talks. He basically repeats the same points in them, but I'll link them. He talks about how he created motivational interviewing. It's kind of a funny story how he's just like, there's no numbers in this paper. There's only the page numbers. Those are the only numbers in this paper. Like, oh, well, we'll try to publish it anyway. And that approach became very successful without him really doing much more than publishing a single paper, I think, on it. So it's it's interesting.
realizing how effective it is and how it basically the results speak for itself. Like I think one guy said that he ended up writing a book with said he wanted him to write more on it because he was using that one publishing that one paper to go around the UK using it as the standard for dealing with addictions, I think it was. So it's just kind of a funny story. Yeah. And Stephen Rolnick is the other founder and he has a really good video. You know, that's that's the first video I showed you on motivational interviewing. You type into YouTube Rolnick on engaging. We can link it as well. It'll be linked. Yeah. And a conversation with someone thinking about addressing their issues with their weight. It's kind of a role play. He's playing a doctor in this scene. And it shows him masterfully rolling with the resistance, where this guy, he presents as upset that he was like waiting in their waiting room. It's like, you kept me waiting. I have no time to be here. And you can watch how all of this negative energy gets just rolled with in like verbal judo to a point where the person's calm and willing to. And he has to come back again later for like a revisit. It's actually amazing. And while it is an enactment, a reenactment of probably some exchange he's had, it is a very believable exchange I could see happening with very abrasive people. And it reminds me of another Dale Carnegie thing where it's like condemning yourself <laughs> when you get caught doing something. Be like, don't try to deny it and weasel your way out of it. Take responsibility. So it's like, you caught me red handed. I was doing it like blah, blah, blah. I mean, maybe not with the cops. So probably wouldn't recommend doing that with them. But <laughs> on an individual level, taking ownership and condemning yourself for being a fool who is too like, like disrespectful and blah, blah, blah. And they probably think you're the worst. People will usually start taking your side. I mean, maybe don't do it too overabundantly. And if you already do have a habit of doing that, maybe you don't continue. It can be too self-deprecating. It can be pretty fun to play with if you're not the type to always self-deprecate. Right. Like if the person shows up, you kept me waiting in there. Like, you're right. We kept you waiting. It wasn't fair. And yeah, you have more important things to do than waiting around in some silly, small, cramped office, you know, just kind of drab. <laughs> and you're, you're an entrepreneur, so you have a very busy schedule and you, you don't need to be kept waiting here. Like, that's literally kind of what he says. The person's like, yeah. Well, yeah. And you'll see, I've done this to people in real life when they've been like angry like that. And you'll see, it's like they're about to like wind up for a verbal punch. And then they realize that you're just kind of like putting your hands behind your back and being like, okay, hit me then. I'm like, it's fine. And they're like, wait, wait no, but you, you, you have to push back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't just be like pummeling on you. Yeah, I mean that does make you feel bad. Like you feel like a bully. Then like they're, they're just taking yeah, it. Yeah, that's exactly it. And you watch this exchange. If you're not too well practiced in it, you're like that's weird. That would never happen. But like from my experience, like it happens all the time. It's super powerful wizardry of sorts. And you you said you use it yourself these days and you almost surprise yourself. You're like, wait a minute, the person's going to do the thing that we've been talking about. This can't be possible. It's actually surprising because like normally when you have these exchanges with people, if you're not trying these things, I find people usually either are kind of like, you're right. And that's a bad sign. You don't want them to say you're right. They will say, oh no, I'm going to do that is if you did it well. If they say you're right, then that is them basically kind of like shaming themselves subtly in a way and it usually means that you didn't get through to them so i'm always like ah if someone says you're right i'm like oh shit like i screwed up but it is still surprising to have somebody like legitimately follow through on things because most people frankly don't you'll talk about what the things they want to do and what they were gonna work on and oftentimes you just kind of have to be like yeah okay and then like in your head you're just like well let's see i don't know if they're actually gonna do anything yeah yeah you want to hear the person say that's right not you're right there's a huge difference that you're right is like somebody tells you you should do this and then the other person's like you're right i should shoulds are never usually very helpful what you'd rather is 
I'm going to make a masterful reflection. And the person's like, that's right. You know what? I think I'm going to, and then they start having an epiphany. So you, when you hear that's right, there's a connection, there's an empathy, they feel understood. And that's the optimal soil. That's the fertilizer. Like, and then they start to kind of figure things out. The wheels start spinning. Um, yeah. Cause if you do a command, like this is what you should do. Your right is what you get as a response. Yes. But if you reflect well and say, yeah, because you're busy and you really want to get these things done, you don't want to keep wasting money on blah, blah, blah. They'll say, that's right. Because like you're not making a point. You're just reflecting their point back to them. So they're not going to say you're right because you're not arguing anything. No. Yeah. So I'll hear you're right sometimes too. And it's like, uh, what did I do wrong? No. <laughs> it sounds like it's, it's success, but like you and I both are kind of like, it's hard to live up to in real life. I, I know all this stuff, but I often like forget it. And that's why I said like, I'm rereading Dale Carnegie now. And I think it's one of those books you have to read every year because there's a lot of stuff that I knew and had practiced and been more personable in the past and just kind of fell out of the habit and just forgot about some of them. And so now revisiting it is like, oh yeah, I should be doing these things. Not like shutting on myself, but more just like, damn, that does make for better exchanges. I do enjoy talking to people more when I follow these rules. Yeah, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. A recommended read as a nice entry into this area. Yeah, by far. And secondly, Chris Foss's Never Split the Difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll link all those things. I'm just going to recap all this. Basically, what we want is to be the fertilizer for other people to be able to grow in. We want to give them the attitude of basically unconditional positive regard, reviewing them positively regardless, supposing we actually want them to change and we care about them. Then we want to evoke what they're, well, I guess, examine what their situation is, see what they're trying to accomplish or what the core problem is and work with them to come up with solutions towards them and doing so through mostly reflections and the occasional questions, yes. open-ended questions that are not why or not accusatory, not getting them to justify and assuming that they know more about their life than you do. Not telling people what to do, not shitting with them, don't ask why. Yeah. Anything I missed, those are the main broad strokes. Wow, that was quite the comprehensive summary. Did you take notes? I didn't. No, that's just trying to remember the things we covered. I think I did them out of order, but good enough. Yeah, that is it's quite the summary there. I never fail to, to deliver on, <laughs> on these. You always say that, but you never fail to give me such sincere compliments, Steve. You're very good at your job. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Share us on your socials and tell people about us. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time, hopefully, and have a great week. Enjoy. Oh, man, we're in the future, Steve. <laughs> we're in the future right now. Whoa, dude.